0: This episode today is brought to you in partnership with Emergen. Emergen, the global digital business firm, helps some of the world's most respected businesses develop their most promising ideas into valuable digital products and customer experiences faster. For more information, visit Emergen.com. That's E-M-E-R-G-N.com. The insurance industry is the backbone of the economy. It's the reason we're able to take risks, and it's the force that helps put us all back together when disaster strikes. So, in this podcast series, I'm spending some quality time with key CEOs to ask them how certain world events can impact the insurance industry and how the insurance industry is impacting the world. We'll also be talking about how they rose to the C suite. It seems like no one grows up yearning for an insurance career, but here we are. I'm Meg Green, managing editor of the online insurance magazine Insider Engage. And this is CEO Perspectives. Insurance companies need insurance, too. And that's where reinsurance comes in. They help primary riders spread the risk. But due to heavy losses, some reinsurers are backing away from covering natural catastrophe, either exiting the market completely or reducing their exposures. And for good reason. Weather-related disasters are becoming more common and more costly. In the U.S., the largest natural catastrophe market, insurers now pay out about $50 billion a year on average. That's 25% more than a decade ago. Swiss Re, the second largest reinsurer, says globally in 2021, natural catastrophes caused $270 billion in economic losses, of which only $111 billion were insured. The rise in insured losses has been a long-term trend. For the last decade, natural catastrophe losses have been growing 5 to 7% annually. While risks like hurricanes and earthquakes used to drive losses, so-called secondary perils, such as floods, hail, and ice storms, now count for more than 70% of all insured losses. To help us dissect the business of writing reinsurance, we're here today with Christian Momenthaler, Group Chief Executive Officer of Swiss Re. Christian's not only an expert on reinsurance, but has a unique perspective on the industry. So Christian, you're in an unusual position for an insurance CEO. You have a PhD in physics. I I don't know of another CEO who can claim that. Um, Can you tell us what attracted you to physics?
1: Yeah, as a, as a kid, uh, I spent a lot of time reading science fiction books, and I was always dreaming about uh, you know scientific uh, uh, research, and uh, one of my early dreams was to work for NASA. But then, yeah, things uh, come a bit differently, and I studied physics more in the biological field. Uh, it was a fantastic time, I have to say. I, I really loved my time in science, working on really interesting things. It's just that uh, after my PhD, I would have had to go to the US for a postdoc, which is tough. You you earn very little. And my girlfriend at the time didn't want to join me. And so I was looking for a job in the real economy, which uh, which uh, made me switch to BCG.
0: Mm-hmm. And is how did you get into insurance?
1: So uh, Swiss Re was one of my clients at the BCG. And after about two years, I switched sides. Uh, I was really fascinated by Swiss Re. I was also open for other types of jobs. I wanted to do something that uh, has meaning and purpose. Um, but Swiss Re clearly fulfilled these criteria. And so that's why I switched to Swiss Re.
0: What did you like about the insurance industry? What what drew you in?
1: Yeah, that's it's funny because a lot of people who pass by insurance get fascinated by it. And I'm certainly one of those. Because once you're inside this industry, which to the outside doesn't have a great image, we all know that, but inside, you actually see a lot of really smart people. The purpose is extremely strong because you make the world more resilient. You basically take premiums from everywhere and then uh, pass it on to those who need to reconstruct their houses, or you help families um, overcome a, a, a grave loss in the family, uh, at least financially. And so, the the purpose is very attractive, uh, I think, and that's what keeps you in a in a company. And Swiss is full of knowledge workers uh, with all kinds of PhDs um, and so it's uh, for people who are intellectually curious uh, every day is interesting even 20 years in.
0: So before you started in the insurance industry I did a little background research on you and found you had created a video game.
1: That's 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 correct yeah since I'm 13 I'm a bit of a computer freak I was one of these you know Early adopters of uh, this commodore sixty four that was, that's what it was called, and then later the Amiga computers and from the beginning, I was fascinated by the fact that uh, the only limiting factor when you had a computer was your own brain that's the only thing that was limiting your creativity and ability to develop something that many, many people could maybe enjoy when i was i can't remember twenty six or so I, I published a computer game on the Well, internet of the time, it was this FTP service. People could download it. It was, yeah, it was a a great time.
0: I also found in my research that you had designed a couple album covers for music bands. Can you tell us about that?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So when I was about 18, I got very much into music. Uh, uh, a bit of special music, so electronic music, hardcore electronic music. And I got to know the the small world, the bands that are active there. And uh, I was interested in computer art. There were new possibilities opening up with the Amiga computer. So I bought a digitizer, which allowed me with a sur- simple surveillance camera to digitize in black and white some pictures from, from news and from other streams and recompose them with different colors and distort them, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of possibilities. And this was attractive to several bands in that, uh, in that uh, <laughs> biotope. And, uh, and so, yeah, I could finance part of my studies by selling um, pictures, computer art to bands.
0: And that wasn't an easy job. They were not in the country, right? So it was, uh, you really had to work to make con- con- that connection.
1: Yes, yes, that's true. Well, at the time, there was no email or no, I mean, just within universities, but so you had to contact uh, all these bands by regular mail. You had to try to make an impression. And uh, the band I work most with is a Canadian band. So it was very far away. And I remember how uh, phone calls at the time, that's before um, liberalization of the market, phone calls to Canada uh, costed like $3 a minute. So you could talk five minutes maybe with everything you had saved uh, with them. And and, yeah, I was in contact with them. I did uh, computer imagery, but also uh, did the European fan service. Uh, And so I was in contact with hundreds of fans.
0: That's great. That's great. And... Would you say you're a big fan of insurance now?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think <laughs> you you don't dedicate 20 plus years of your life to something if you don't believe in it. I, I, I really think it's a, a force of good.
0: You spent most of your career with Swiss Re. Can you tell us about the culture there?
1: So the culture of Swiss Re is evolving like all other cultures around the world. When I, when I came, what fascinated, fascinated me the most is that there's so much knowledge uh, in the company and it's not very hierarchical because what counts is the knowledge so uh, very early on i could uh, ask uh, you know much more senior people to join a meeting and they would show up and then you could uh, you know if you were tasked to manage a project they would try to help you it's a very helpful culture. People help you even if they're not in your own department. So very collegial. It has evolved. It, became, it has become more commercial. Obviously, it had to. It had to evolve, uh, become more commercial, more client oriented. Um, but I think the fundamental. DNA is still very much the one of a knowledge company. So uh, knowledge is, is highly regarded and is uh, abundantly available. And all these people take a kick out of being with other people who have a lot of knowledge uh, and you can have, uh, ev- I, I usually say you can have a lunch every day with another person at Swiss Re and it's going to be a guaranteed interesting lunch because they will be doing something on some risk somewhere, which is uh, interesting.
0: How would you describe the reinsurance market today?
1: Well, the reinsurance market has gone through phases, uh, and um, it's a bit a, the, we, we call it cycles, a bit of a yo-yo. Uh, and if you have some good uh, times, like we had in twelve to sixteen, very little natural catastrophes, then typically a lot of money comes in and prices come down. And then you have catastrophes sooner or later uh, picking up, and then prices go back up. So. Uh, we were in a in a pretty bad soft market, as we call it, where prices were too low and then in in seventeen we had natural catastrophes also in eighteen then we had covid and so the the reinsurance market has really really performed as a shock absorber for society the last few years. I guess that's the positive way of describing that it hasn't made great returns for shareholders generally uh and of course over time this all needs to even out so it's in a phase where prices go up uh, and they will go up until you come back on some of these losses and you, you can demonstrate a, 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 an acceptable return over time.
0: You raise an interesting point about the difficulty the industry had with natural catastrophes. It seems like a lot of reinsurers are, are stepping away from writing a natural catastrophe risk. They don't even want to be called uh, property cat reinsurers anymore. Uh, wh- what do you make of that trend?
1: Of course, there's always phases of external perception, and it's shifting. And so, as a CEO, you have to pay attention to that, but you also have to have your own view, uh, because uh, these can be short-lived, these trends can be short-lived. So, there was this trend of everybody has to be in, in Asia, in high-growth markets, uh, and then, of course, you you constructed infrastructure around that, but then, after a few years, people stopped asking you about that, but you still have the infrastructure and you need to continue. And so NatCat is about the same thing. There were phases where it was very popular, then not so popular. More recently, because there have been a, a whole series of uh, natural catastrophes that were very visible and people realize that climate change is real, which is something we have said for, for many years, uh, there's a lot of worries around sustainability of the prices, whether the prices are big enough, whether we know what we're doing. I have to say, we have a group of 30 to 50 people working in the field. I feel very confident. It's one of the best understood risks. It's a shifting risk. So, yes, you have to be at the forefront. But we personally feel very committed uh, to this market. It's just the limit of how much we can take. But we feel very committed to the market and think it's, it's core to our value proposition.
0: How do you balance natural catastrophe, also called NatCat, with the rest of your book of business?
1: Yeah, diversification, I guess, is the reason for us to exist, and it's an extremely powerful thing. So uh, in the last investor Day, we showed a very interesting calculation where we looked at the NatCat book we just talked about. And if we wrote only a natural catastrophe business, uh, the return on equity would be only 6%. If uh, we take the whole PNC book, it's 12%. The same book is 12% because there's other businesses that can compensate and we don't need as much capital. And if we add everything we have, including the life and health space where we are very big, it's more like 26%. So the same business can seem very unprofitable if you are not big and diversified. And is very interesting and profitable if you're heavily diversified.
0: So you've been with Swiss Reef since 1999. And one of your early projects was developing the Group Retro and Syndication Unit in 2002. Can you tell us about that project and how you saw the market shifting at that time?
1: Yeah, that was a fascinating uh, assignment. I had done some e-business projects for Swiss Re, which uh, were commercially unsuccessful. They were technically successful, but unsuccessful. And after that, I was asked to develop this proposition further, this whole uh, cat bond insurance linked securities idea. There had been a few cat bonds out there for years, but it was sporadic. And typically, the prices were very high for the issuer and the buyers were mostly other reinsurers, so it it, it was a bit besides the purpose. And so I was asked to develop a, a bigger investor base and to create a product that's more where, where people would be sure there would be supply, continuous supply, which is one of the key elements you need for investors to come in. And so we came in and, and worked a lot with uh, interested investors, educated them. But at the same time, we developed uh, an innovative structure called Pioneer at the time. We won some prices for it, which was innovative because it was a structure that allowed us to issue capons uh, on a regular basis on a reverse inquiry process. Which which means that instead of saying, have a cap on the 500 million, I need to find investors and you, the price you pay as an issuer is what the, the last investor is ready to take, it's reversed. You, you wait every month, you say it's open and two or three people come and they want 75 million and you just issue 75 million on demand. So it's much more efficient for the issuer and that allowed us to to get prices lower and it allowed investors to know that this program was always open. And and so we were able to basically start and create this um, market, which today is huge. Uh, I mean, it's a huge market with lots of investors, but at the time it sounds bizarre today, but there was really not a lot of interest.
0: It's really fascinating how that market has grown and evolved. Um, do you see it continuing to grow and, and take and become the home for more nat cat risk?
1: There's a chronic lack of supply which will lead to prices that are attractive for standalone risk takers. So I think it's it's a very attractive risk for capital markets and they will play a very important role uh, going forward. But it's much more tricky if you have long tail lines like casualty or motor, where it's harder to model. Uh, it's much longer tail, which uh, typical capital market investors don't like. Uh, so they're fine to take three years, five years, six years, but 30 year bonds is really hard to digest. And the same is true for uh, longevity, mortality trend and things like that. So I think it's it's, it's where you have a well-modeled risk or more or less well-modeled risk. And it's a short tail risk where at the end of one or two years, you can say whether you have been hit or not.
0: And you had uh, a life bond years ago, very in the early days, right? Was was it pandemic related?
1: Yes. So 2003, we were the first to issue a bond to protect against the pandemic. And this, uh, because we knew at the time, this is one of our peak risks at Swiss Re. uh, And we had some models, but we realized that the external world didn't have a lot of sophisticated models because the first risk assessment that came back from from third parties was way underestimating the risk. And this is where I realized, also with my background in in biophysics, that the world was actually not protected against uh, another virus. Uh, We were well protected against lots of illnesses, but with virus, there's really nothing we can do. And sooner or later, there would be uh, a new pandemic, as there was in 1918. So this was very apparent at the time. Uh, We actually talked about it to many people. Uh, I was part of the chief risk officer group who, in 2007, published a, a warning. There's a paper you can still download of what would happen if 1918 came again. And the paper is very clear in the first sentence that it's just a question of when, not if. Uh, and a lot of the predictions we made were actually quite accurate.
0: So about the, the life bond, you don't, that doesn't exist anymore? It's uh, fallen out of favor?
1: Yeah, this is maybe interesting. This is what corporates do. So we issued that, but since the pandemic didn't come after several years, somebody must have decided to uh, cut it down. And so by the time we had a pandemic, there was no protection left.
0: Would that be something you'd consider redoing today?
1: Oh, yes, of course.
0: A quick break to talk about this episode's sponsor, Emergen. Emergen offers learning, consulting, and technology services to help clients own their transformation and create high-performing teams. For more information, visit their website, Emergen.com. That's E-M-E-R-G-N.com. If there was anything you could change about the industry, what would it be?
1: I guess I'm an impatient person, so uh, the industry is in transformation. There's a significant potential to make insurance uh, easier, to uh, include mechanisms that actually lower the risk, that make people healthier, safer, and there's lots of experiments, but I guess if I had a wand, I would just accelerate all of that uh, significantly. Part of the image that's the, that is that is existing out there uh, is because of that, because it's it's just... It, it just takes longer. There's old IT systems that, that take a long time to replace and are very costly to replace. So it's not that easy. A lot of insurance companies have grown through acquisitions and then you have, you know, multiple systems, et cetera. So eventually it will get there, but yeah, if I had a magic wand, I would accelerate that. And I think it would do our industry a lot of good.
0: Could you say where you're seeing the biggest growth opportunities today?
1: so for re within the the shorter term at this stage the nat cat field is clearly a field where there's a lot of attraction the the prices are better uh and certainly with our balance sheet we can take more on and as i said before we have also investors who are interested in that risk and, and interested to to join with us so we have some capacity overall, together with with our investors, to go into that market, uh, and then the, it will very much depend on the price movement. We we don't tend to say you know five years in advance of where we're going to grow. It very much depends on the dynamics of the of the renewal.
0: What do you think is needed to close the protection gap, the difference between the economic losses and the insured losses?
1: Yeah, I think the whole insurance industry uh, sees it as a frustration that when you have an economic loss of let's say hundreds typically only half of it is insured uh, in the world or less. But even in, in developed countries, sometimes very little is covered. If I take Italy, which I have an Italian passport from my wife uh, and I feel close to, uh, when there were earthquakes uh, in the center of Italy, uh, only 2% of houses were insured. And that's the 2% that were rebuilt quickly. And the rest is a bit of a disaster. Typical state help struggles to go down to the bottom and, and uh, be used in, a, in an efficient way. We always forget that insurance is not just about uh, pre-financing losses, it's also a whole claims distribution system that's extremely performing uh, and adds huge value to the the whole process so that very quickly you can bring the money where it needs to be. Whereas if you do post-financing, a big loss happened, the government uh, speaks a credit, how do you distribute that and how do you know who needs it, etc.? You don't have contracts or anything it's it's very inefficient. So I think the biggest progress is probably in, in the high growth countries where there's just the, the insurance penetration is going up rapidly. So there you make progress. Uh, there's also progress in some of the poorest countries where uh, more and more governments uh, realize that it increases the resilience of their, of their government if they do pre-financing and not post-financing. So There's more and more consensus around that. And so in these countries, we typically uh, partner with governments and uh, a state-owned insurance company uh, to provide protection to sometimes millions of individuals. The slowest progress uh, really is in the developed countries where, uh, for example, in the U.S., uh, uh, only a minority, I think, is 12 or 14% of people in California have insured their houses against earthquakes, even though it's 100% sure there will be earthquakes uh, in the future in that region. And in many cases, people could afford it. They just don't want to. Buy it so you have this sort of unwillingness to to face the risk or maybe and actually it's unknown what all the factors are there's some some it is not completely logical uh, it, it's more a psychological factor that people don't like to think about the, the negative things uh, the, the future etc and many people don't buy it even though if you ask them they think it would make sense they would have the money so this is one of the biggest challenges and and sort of mysteries uh, that we have in the insurance industry around the, the protection gap.
0: How do you counter that? How do you get people to change their mind about insurance and and see it as worth buying?
1: We have now uh, a team of about 20 um, psychologists at Swiss Re uh, who have studied this new art of uh, behavioral uh, economics, and uh, they they are very good. That's the, the first group who is able to explain what's happening in the real world so that people, even though... Rationally, they would want to buy, they, they don't buy. So uh, one way we already tried is, of course, bringing costs down, making the product more attractive, uh, more digitally available, look at other distribution. And you make some progress, but it's still relatively small compared to all the the effort. And then other ideas are, well, how about combining insurance with something else so that people trust the, the other product and then insurance is in it. And the, the obvious one would be cars. Uh, many people have a very fond relationship with the brand of their own car, and so if the, uh, let's say the, the car manufacturer would offer something that's included, uh, you can see the obvious synergies, right? It could be included in the the more digital system inside. It could be uh, pay by the mile. It could be pay dependent on how you drive. And if you have an accident, you don't need to explain anything to anybody. You just go to a garage and the, the car has stored everything. So you can easily imagine how the process could be significantly less costly and, and, and much more client friendly. Uh, and that might, we don't know, but that might uh, lower the hurdles for people to, to buy insurance. Uh, and then in, in, in other places, what we have observed clearly for some insurance, the only way uh, to do it is to make it mandatory. That, that means it's extremely cheap. Compared to the risk, because you don't have marketing costs. Everybody, uh, you know, pays in an amount, and you have a minimal infrastructure uh, which pays out if if there's an event.
0: Great, great, Christian. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Meg.
0: So in this episode, I learned how creativity can play a role in helping insurers and reinsurers manage risk and how diversification can help reinsurers balance their risks. I also learned about the potential role of embedded insurance to close the protection gap. I'd like to thank Christian Momenthaler for taking the time to speak with us, and also thank my very patient producer, Lindsay Riley from Earshot Strategies for making us sound so good. For my Insider Engage team, Celine Frost, Kareem Magaro, Michelle Heatherly, and Emma May for their support in getting the podcast out, And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Please sign up to follow CEO Perspectives on your favorite podcast platform. For Insider Engage, I'm Meg Green. Thanks to our partner Emergen for supporting our podcast. Emergen is a global digital business services firm with a mission to improve the way people and companies work forever. For more information, visit their website emergent.com. That's e m e r g n.com.